You're listening to a ComicsXF podcast. WMQA. Hello and welcome to WMQA, the ComicsXF interview podcast where two best friends talk about comics with the people who make them. I'm Dan Grote. And I'm Matt Laswitz. And this week's guest is one of the writers of the Batman Scooby-Doo Mysteries, as well as a lot of other all-ages books for DC and the Scooby universe, Sholly Fish. Sholly, welcome. Thank you. Hello. How are you guys? Doing fine. So we are right in the middle of the holiday season. Uh, How did Hanukkah treat you this year? (laughs) Well, uh, all of my kids have been home over the course of Hanukkah, so it was actually really nice. Um, And now, and actually everybody even liked their gift, which is even better. (laughs) (laughs) Always nice when that works out. Yeah. So first time guest question, what are some of the first comics that you remember reading? So I can tell you exactly. Um, The first comic book that I ever bought was Justice League of America number 61 uh, when I was about five years Uh, oldish. I still have my shredded copy of it, Uh, (laughs) although I did buy uh, a nicer copy later because it's just falling to pieces. Um, But yeah, no, that was, you know, when I was exactly the right age to get completely hooked um on the wave of bat mania that swept the country with adam west and burt ward batman series so i first came into comics actually through that um that was my first exposure and then you know this justice league comic was the first time i actually saw it on paper and then that led to Batman comics and detective comics and others, you know, whatever, whatever I could afford with my, whatever it was, 25 cent allowance or something like that at the time. Um, And it just sort of snowballed from there. So amongst the things you're here to talk about is the new ongoing volume of the Batman Scooby-Doo mysteries. Uh, Here's the solicit text for the first issue for those who haven't read it. A new ongoing series teams up Gotham's greatest detective with Crystal Cove's teen sleuths. The big tops the place for thrills and chills, even more so when a traveling circus is haunted. But even Scooby and the gang don't realize just how chilling it is for Nightwing. Because this is Haley's Circus, Dick Grayson's childhood home. Wow, so, you do that so well. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. He's had a lot of practice. <laughs> <laughs> Nearly 300 episodes, 300 weeks. I, I, I'm a pro at this. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I actually, I just got my copies of, I mean, it's not going to be out till January, the, that, the first issue of the new ongoing series, but I just got my copies the other day. And um, it actually turned out really nicely. Uh, you know, Dario Brizuela, uh, drew this issue and Dario and I have been working together for oh, more years than I like to think about at this point. And, um, you know, and he always does a terrific job. Um, and yes, and your solicitor does, doesn't even mention the surprise sort of guest star in this issue who I will not spoil, but, uh, but I'll just say the, the, the ghost in this issue is not unfamiliar. Mm, so, I, yeah. as, as our resident Batman person, I think I have a feeling, but I'm not going to say anything either. We'll, we'll, we'll see. <laughs> okay. I'll I'm look forward to seeing if I'm right or not. Okay. Uh, so this is the third volume of Bat Scoob, as I affectionately address it. Um, how does it feel this time that it's an ongoing, not just the twelve issue sort of maxi series? Right. So. You know, it's kind of interesting. Let me, I'm I'm actually going to step back for a second. So, you know, I've written an incredible amount of Scooby-Doo at this point. Um, I've written the regular Scooby book. I wrote 50 issues of Scooby Team Up. And this is the third Batman Scooby series. So when, when I first started writing the regular Scooby-Doo series, and this is, I don't know, 20 years ago, something like that. Um, my niece at that time was about 10 years old and um, it overshadowed immediately everything else I had ever done in my life. Um, 
And and I mentioned it to Joan Hilty, who was my editor at the time, and she said, yeah, you know, a lot of people who work on Scooby-Doo say that. And, you know, I don't know why. And when I repeated that to my niece, she said, well, does she realize that it's Scooby-Doo? <laughs> and that that is the undeniable power of Scooby-Doo. Um, so when... When I was first approached about doing Scooby Team Up you know, several years ago, uh, it was originally supposed to be a one-shot Batman Scooby-Doo special. And and as I usually do with these things, you know, they asked me to to um, come up with a story. And so I pitched like, I don't know, maybe four different stories or something like that so that they could pick the one that they like. And... Um, and Christy Quinn, who who was my editor and who's the editor now on, on Batman Scooby as well, um, told me that, you know, when people saw, you know, that I had come up with all these stories, they realized, oh, there's actually potential to do more than a one shot here. And so it became a six issue Batman Scooby-Doo series. And by the time I had finished writing the first issue, maybe the second then Christy said, you know, people were thinking about it and realized, you know, they could actually expand this out beyond that. So now it's going to be, you know, Scooby-Doo and the whole DC universe and, you know, and Hanna-Barbera and it's going to and it's going to be an ongoing series. And so the one shot turned into 50 issues. So the fact that the 12 issue limited series actually has turned into two 12 issue limited series and an ongoing series is no surprise to me whatsoever because we realize it's Scooby-Doo. <laughs> <laughs> and and that's sort of the thing. Scooby-Doo has, has always played well with, with other, if not IP, notable human beings. You go back to the 70s and right. they were teaming up with, you know, Laurel and Hardy and the Harlem Globetrotters, Phyllis Diller, et cetera. And, and that kind of set me off on a path. So... The other day, uh, my family and I were all home and I decided to go on YouTube and look up the Star Wars holiday special from 1978. <laughs> oh, I'm and, sorry. <laughs> and, well, okay. So that's the thing, right? Like in retrospect, it looks terrible. Sure. You know, there it's not like there's been a 4K restoration or anything like that. And it in a vacuum, it makes no sense that Chewbacca A has a family and B, you know, has Art Carney for a wacky neighbor and B. Arthur, you know, runs the most Eisley canteen on the weekends. But that was what 1970s media was. It was just yeah. variety shows and mashing up, you know, uh, guest stars in the Muppet show and, and, and all of that. So really in, in what pop culture was, all that makes sense. And I, I forget how to bring this back to the power of Scooby-Doo, but I just I just made that connection in my head. Oh, yeah. No, it's absolutely true. And, you know, the thing that's sort of interesting in Batman Scooby, um, you know, so the first the first volume was uh, half of it was written by me and half of it was written by Ivan Cohen, whom I love. And we we started having this sort of friendly rivalry where we kind of saw, okay, who could go more, more over the top than the other one could. Um, by the second volume, uh, they brought in a couple more writers, Matthew Cody and Amanda Debert. And in the new ongoing, uh, Jay Torres is coming in as well. Um, and it's sort of interesting to see the kind of the, how the, how our different approaches overlap and how they're very different so ivan and i you know are both diehard batman fans who at similar young ages although there's a few years between us discovered the book batman from the 30s to the 70s and so um you know and just our heads exploded and so you know when you read ivan's stories you read my stories there's a lot, uh, well, like this issue, for example, that we're going to Heli Circus and, and all of that. It's all really grounded in Batman. And there's a lot of Scooby-Doo stuff in there too. But, but you know, 
we we've taken the opportunity to pull out every obscure bit of Batman lore that we ever wanted to really play with and do it. Um, and I can give you some examples actually in a minute. Um, once Matthew and Amanda came in, it was really interesting because when I would read their issues, it felt more like like what you were talking about from the new Scooby Doo mystery uh, mystery no new Scooby Doo movies in the seventies. Um, where it was like a Scooby-Doo story that Batman was in. Um, and so we've all sort of fed off each other and, and you know, and it's become this sort of mishmash that um, has gotten really interesting because, I mean, like I say, I've, I wrote 50 issues of Scooby Team Up. I've written, you know, however, you know, a dozen issues of Batman Scooby. And so, you know, part of the challenge is, you know, how do you keep it fresh? Um and because we're all sort of feeding off each other um and you know and i still will not forgive ivan for coming up with the idea of teaming up shaggy with the shaggy man before i did but you know but because we're all feeding off with each other each other it sparks all these other ideas um which keeps it going so um yeah so so it's been actually really good um but just just to finish the other thought that, I, that came up in the middle of that so as an example of the kinds of Batman lore um, that we're still pulling off of, you know, I um, I just wrote an issue. Uh, I have no idea what number any of these are going to be, but I just wrote an issue that's got Barbara Gordon and her father on her first day on the job in the Gotham Public Library, where now she has to help scooby and the gang deal with this ghost without her father discovering either of her secret identities actually um and the one before that <clears throat> is the museum of giant props um you know and and stuff like that so you know it's just it's just a real opportunity to have fun with all of this junk um you know i did the same thing actually the, the DC holiday special just came out. Um, I have a story in that, which is Damien meeting Batmite in the Batcave. Um, and uh, Batmite thinking that Damien must be an imposter because he's not Dick Grayson or Jason Todd or Tim Drake or, you know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And it all kind of goes from there. Um, but, you know, it's it's wonderful to be able to just play with this stuff and and to have people actually let us do it Be between batman and scooby can you go to a circus without it either being haunted or the scene of some sort of crime <laughs> no you can't um actually actually the story that i just wrote with the one with barbara gordon and her father you know scooby and the gang show up in the library and she says you know are you doing here and say well you know since batman's out in space with the justice league he asked us to chase down man bat but it turned out it wasn't really man bat it was just a creepy old lighthouse keeper in a mask so. on that note something that's i've always wondered and maybe the answer is simply you just have to kind of hand wave it a little but when it comes to the formula most iterations of Scooby-Doo exist in a world where the supernatural is just real estate developers in rubber suits. But yep. this is set in a sort of quasi DC universe where the supernatural is real and not just aliens, but the legit angel of vengeance is on a superhero team. How do you play with those two worlds and make them work without either one sort of breaking? Right. So that's the challenge. And that's also the fun. So I'll, I'll give you an old example from Scooby team up. One of my favorite issues of Scooby team up is, uh, I think it was number 13. Cause I intentionally did that. Um, it's a Halloween story where they team up with dead man, the phantom stranger and the specter. And, uh, the entire story was built around my favorite moment in the story where um, without going into all the details, basically the specter has been captured and, and, and by 
hiding Jim Corrigan's body somewhere. And so he's gotten weaker and weaker and weaker as he's been separated from his host and he needs to, to combine with a host. And so he winds up merging with Scooby and there's this wonderful panel of Scooby dressed as the specter saying vengeance. Um, but, um, but the issue ends with them thinking it's a dream, which it's not. Um, and so, you know, and that's, that's kind of how you walk that line that, um, you know, more modern Scooby stuff. Sometimes it really is supernatural, but I, I tend to lean toward the old school and, um, you know, so off there, there's always, there's always the basics of a Scooby story. There's always going to be somebody who gets unmasked. There's always going to be Shaggy and Scooby freaking out and running around like idiots there. You know, it's all those basic elements, but the, the, the challenge becomes how do you combine those in a way that we haven't seen before? Um, you know, and it's the same challenge when I've written regular Scooby stories. And so I've done things like, you know, I, I did a Hitchcock issue. I did a Midsummer Night's Dream issue. I did, you know, all sorts of stuff. Um, and when you start mixing them up with, you know, the Batman and all the characters of that universe, then you can use those those kind of basic elements, but suddenly in ways that we've never seen before. Um, and you know that's part of what makes it fun. Your favorite personal versions of the the Scooby Gang is you know people who aren't Scooby Doo people think oh it's just Scooby Doo, but there are really different flavors across oh, yeah. the thirty the the was fifty plus years fifty years now? yeah fifty years already um, the, or fifty. Four now, actually. Um, Crisis of Infinite Scoobies was the fiftieth anniversary. Oh, uh, thank you, because I was going to bring that up, and now you you did it for me, right? <laughs> so yes, the the last issue of Scooby Team Up was the Crisis of Infinite Scoobies, where I teamed up all the different versions of Scooby Doo uh, and the gang, and that too, that was enormous fun because you know I had a pup named Scooby Doo, you know, interacting with Scooby Apocalypse, um, you know, um, and actually part of the fun of that was that the artist on that one was Scott Geralds, who um, who's also drawing some of the issues of Batman Scooby. But but the thing about Scott is that he worked for Hanna Barbera for years, and um, he was one of the people who designed a pup named Scooby Doo, so. You know, so I, I did my script and he pointed out all the things that I didn't quite get right so that I could fix them. Um, and so that was really cool. Um, Scott's a good guy. actually. So I mean, you've talked a little bit about your your love of bat lore, but beyond that, you have a deep volume of DC lore in general. Oh, yeah. Uh, is there a favorite bit? of obscure lore you've worked in and before you go for me it's definitely issue 30 of scooby team up where the gang runs across all of the weird explorer teams of oh the, the challengers issue yeah the Chals, the secret six yeah. cave carson the sea devils and the time masters all of yeah them that, was, that was a fun one for and that was a fun one but for me the the, the one like that that was the most fun for me was I think it's 36. It's the one where they team up with all of the um, old DC humor characters. So it's Angel and the Ape and the Inferior Five and Stanley and his monster, Sugar and Spike, and, you know, like alternate versions because we didn't have a license of Jerry Lewis and Bob Hope and stuff like that. Um, I... I am very grateful for what I do for a living and for the really, let's politely say, eclectic nature of my particular career, um, because I have gotten to write characters that I never in my life thought I would ever get to. I've written Penelope Pitstop, for God's sake. Um, and, uh, you know, and so... And I, and I have been blessed and I will say I will say I have been blessed with editors who rarely say no to me, um, which is one of the joys of doing out of continuity stuff. Um, it was 
very, very different when I was doing action comics backups behind Grant Morrison. And suddenly people were paying attention and telling me what I couldn't do. Um, but, uh, you know, but that's one of the great things about being on a, out of continuity is you can get away with an enormous amount of stuff that you never could if it was, you know, if it counted, you know. Um, so I've gotten to use so many characters that that i truly love my if i had to pick one favorite probably batmite um and i have put batmite into every series i could possibly put him into (laughs) um just because i love the character um but you know i my wife my wife will tell you you know how what it was like and how gleeful i was the first time i got to write bugs bunny and the first time i got to write batman and you know and it was the same thing the first time i got to write captain marvel or plastic man or you know ultra the multi-alien for that sake um you know so i'm i'm very grateful is there anything that or anything or anyone that you haven't gotten to work in yet that you're still hoping for to find that that right story there you know there are a couple there are a couple that during i really tried during scooby team up but for one reason or another just didn't get approved and some of them i i understand why and some of them i don't um the next issue issue 51 of scooby team up which i wrote but never got published because the series got canceled uh was the metal men um, so I have never done the Metal Men print, although I have written Metal Men story. Um, for some reason, I could never get approval to do the New Gods or the Forever People. Um, I think it was just there was too much other stuff going on with them or whatever. And then I finally figured out how to get around it. And so, you know, so when I was doing, uh, what was it? Actually, both Scooby Team Up and Batman Brave and Bold, I did them both because I couldn't use them. I did a Mr. Miracle story in each one. Um, and then I wrote a Teen Titans Go graphic novel, Teen Titans Go to Camp, um, where they go to summer camp at Camp Apocalypse, uh, which is run by Granny Goodness and, and has basically all the villains without the heroes. So I've sort of managed to sneak my way in. Um, but uh, haven't haven't quite gotten all the way there yet. It's funny you say the forever people, and the minute you said it, it's like, oh, I can absolutely see that combination. Shaggy yeah. and Shaggy would work they're, really they're, well with. Yeah, they're super powered hippies. I mean, you know, <laughs> Shaggy and Big Bear having an eating contest. It, it writes itself. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> I love the forever people because all I can think is just Jack Kirby being like, man, I don't get what these kids are about today, but I'm I'm here for it. You know, I I love I love the Kirby fourth world stuff. Large I mean, partly just because it's, you know, so impressive that you managed to come up with that entire universe, but but mostly because some of it is just so bizarre and over the top. And, you know, I mean he added flip a dippa to the newsboy legion and there's this black kid in scuba gear for no apparent reason you know i i i'm in awe <laughs> of what he did in that stuff so someday someday funky flashman i mean there's... funky flashman yeah yeah oh boy mm. is there is there can you share a specific time an editor might have said no to you Oh, I'll tell you a great story. Um, and this is this is the sort of thing I was talking about with action. Um, so, what you know, I was writing these backup stories. Um, they they all had to somehow or other loosely tie into whatever Grant was doing in the front of the book. And I did this one story uh, that started out on the first couple pages um, with the Justice League. We're, we're in the middle of the Justice League in this big fight, and Superman 
has to leave and without going into all of it, he has to leave because he has to go to this observatory because he has this thing that there's a certain time of the year when you can actually like see Krypton. Um, and you know, but, um, but anyway, so he's in the middle of this thing with the justice league. And I knew, I knew, I knew, I knew that, you know, being low man on the totem pole, I would not get to use any villain that, um, was being used in any other comic at the moment. Um, so I said, okay, I'm going to go with the most obscure Justice League villain I can possibly think of. So I picked Zotar the Weapons Master, who had appeared in the second Justice League story, and I think maybe two or three times in the 60, 70 years since then. And my editor you know, called me and said, oh, sorry, Jeff Johns has plans for Zotar. You can't use them. <laughs> and I said, all right, well, if I can't use Zotar the weapons master, there's nobody that I'm going to be able to do. So I turned it into an alien invasion uh, with these reptilian aliens and whatever. And... um and so I took advantage of the opportunity because there's something that, you know, when I first saw it, however many decades ago in X-Men, I thought, oh, that's really cool. But it's become such a cliche since then where you have alien names that are just like a bunch of consonants with some apostrophes in them. <laughs> yes. So, you know, so I made the leader of the alien invasions name. G apostrophe B R S S S apostrophe H, which is gibberish, you know. And um and my editor said, Oh no, the you know, the people on high say you're not taking this seriously enough. <laughs> so I said, All right. So I went back to rename the uh the leader of the aliens and so i changed it to something like an apostrophe r r s apostrophe s s h k apostrophe t which is narishkeit which nobody spoke yiddish so they didn't realize that that meant gibberish <laughs> and so that one went through <laughs> so, um but yeah, that that that's sort of, in a nutshell, the difference between working in continuity and out of continuity. Yeah. It's funny when you said obscure Justice League villain, the first name that came into my head was oh, Weapons Master. Nobody remembers that. Wow, good for you. <laughs> yeah, him or uh, Epic, the Lord of Time. That's pretty good. The Lord and, uh, of, well, Lord Lord of Time's actually shown up more often than than Zotar has. The, the... Yeah, Zotar. Showed showed up in the. I first encountered him in one of his like three other appearances. Mm -hmm. Dan Jurgens' first arc on Justice League America after mm -hmm. the Giffen Demetrius era right. ended. That was I was like, and I thought you know he showed up in that. And I was like, well, this guy's got to be a big deal. And then I was like, no, no, he isn't. <laughs> no, he really isn't. But uh, but you know that's part of why I love him. <laughs> So corporate Mishigas aside, as we all know, this could never happen. Uh, if you could team Mystery Inc. up with one property from DC's, uh, well, they call DC the Distinguished Competition. I don't believe DC has a particular name for their opposite number. <laughs> Is there a character you would like to use there? Oh, to from team Marvel? Up with? Yeah, from Marvel. Huh. Oh, I'm sure there is. Uh, let's see. Who's, who's Marvel got that's a ghost? Um, that would probably be it. Or, well, I mean, Doctor Strange would be a natural. But uh, but actually, no, I'll tell you something more bizarre than that. Um, one of the Scooby team-ups that didn't wind up happening um, was we were going to, we, we, we were trying to do an issue that was going to, ta to team up uh, mystery ink with spy versus spy since warner brothers owned mad hmm. um but in the end mad didn't go for it unfortunately um 
And that would have been that would have been a very challenging issue to write, but it would have been a really fun issue to write because the way I was going to do it, as in Spy vs. Spy, the spies were never going to speak. Um, and, you know, maybe they would talk in like, well, what we would now call emojis, but, uh, but you know, that would be about it. Um, but alas, it, it remains on the, you know, shelf of stories that never have happened. But, but I have learned, I have learned never to assume that it never will. <laughs> um you know i wrote a I, I wrote a pitch for a batman graphic novel oh at least 15 years ago um back before dc was really doing graphic novels and, and so i pitched it as a limited series and paul levitt said oh you know this is a good idea but it would work better as a book why don't you talk to the book people and because they weren't doing graphic novels the book people had no idea what to do with it so it never went anywhere and then you know maybe two years ago um when i was gonna pitch you know graphic novel idea i said hey wait a second i already have a graphic novel idea and i took out my old pitch changed i think two sentences and it was published last year as batman's mystery casebook so never say never <laughs> so that that actually segues pretty much into what was going to be one of my next questions. But before I get there, I just now you saying, you know, who's a ghost at Marvel. I now have an image in my head of Ghost Rider driving. The oh, Ghost Rider is perfect. Yes, of course. <laughs> it's literally of course. flaming wheels on the mystery machine. I just, yeah. The, oh, the, that's it, brilliant. And actually, had, and that, oh, and now and Scooby with flames around his head. Oh, yeah. No, absolutely. <laughs> Batman's mystery case book uh, is despite me not being the the target for it is an absolute favorite uh i it wound up uh pretty high on the list my uh, my other podcast bat chats list of favorite batman stories oh wow because uh, yeah, both me and my co-host there are both grew up on encyclopedia brown yeah and i've were was that a of short form that kind of the encyclopedia brown stuff something you remembered because it had there's a vibe yeah no i mean i still look i'm still a big mystery fan um i actually just finished uh reading a mystery today in fact but um when i was a kid party boys encyclopedia brown minute mysteries you know, there's all, uh, you know, Sherlock Holmes, of course, but, you know, but, but things like Encyclopedia Bound, Minute Mysteries, stuff like that, where, where it was the solve it yourself stuff. I loved that stuff. Um, and I've wanted to do a solve it yourself. And actually I did do when I was writing the regular Scooby book, um, among other people, uh, for the, for a couple of years, I would do a feature that was, um, scooby mini mysteries where it was like a two-page scooby story that was a solve it yourself mystery with the answer in the back of the book so i love that stuff and and you know what better way to do that than to you know have you as a detective matching wits with the world's greatest detective um which is really where the whole book came from and um yeah, so that that's actually one of my favorites too. So I'm I'm glad you guys like it. That's great. How was working with artist Christopher Christopher Minga on that mm -hmm. to make sure that the the clues and everything in the art matched the script? And oh. was it more of a was it more intensive process than what you normally do? Yes, but not because of Chris. Um, Chris is. Chris, I will say, by the way, I, I, I didn't get to meet him in person until after the book was done, but he's an incredibly sweet guy. Uh, and one of the things that impressed the hell out of me and, and that I really I have apologized to him for many times um, is that the last story in that book, because I needed to finish on something big, is, is set in a parade. And I never in a million years imagined that Chris would draw every single person in the parade and in the crowd watching the parade. You know, I was expecting like little circles with some color, 
but no, 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 no. He drew everybody. Um, so yeah, there was there was a certain degree. I mean, you know, I I would get um, I would get rough sketches and art proofs and stuff like that to to check over to make sure exactly that that you know the clues were coming across right and whatever. And there, you know, occasionally I would make a change, but there wasn't a lot of that. What was really much more intense was for the book to work every time you got up to or you know to the reveal of the answer it needed to be a page turn you couldn't have it on a facing page so i had written when i was writing the script for it i made sure that every reveal was on an even numbered page so that it would always be a page turn then long after i had written it and after chris had drawn it uh and again it was christy quinn again was my editor because uh, i love working with christy um but christy said oh we're gonna have like page breaks in between you know the stories like chapter break kind of things and i realized oh my god that's gonna throw off all the page count um and so at that point i went back through the entire script to figure out where those were going to be, how that was going to change the page numbering, and what, if anything, we needed to do in order to make sure that it still worked. Um, and that just gave me headaches for about two days as, as I was just like sitting there staring at the computer saying, okay, no, so page 72 is now page 76. So that means... Um, but but it all worked in the end, so it was worth it. It was it was just uh, <laughs> it was a little more work than I was planning on, and I have no doubt that Christy was grateful that I did it instead of making her do it. <laughs> so uh, we we talked a little about this before, but you've got a story in uh, the new Might Before Christmas DC mm -hmm. anthology, which you mentioned is the first meeting between Damian Wayne and Batmite. Uh, Batmite, of course, is one of the zanier concepts from Batman history, and Damien is Batman's murder baby son. Uh, <laughs> yep. <laughs> maybe this question already answers itself, but what was kind of the impetus for you for having these two kids mix it up? So actually, actually, this is a story that um, a friend of mine, James Fry, and I came up with, oh, it's got to be like 35 years ago. Um when Robin was Jason Todd. Um, and we loved this story and it was, you know, but we also knew full well, a hundred percent. This was, I mean, this was right after crisis and all of that stuff, that there was no way in hell that DC would ever let us do this story. Um, so we never even pitched it to them. Now things are a little different. And so what happened was Ivan Cohen, one of my co-writers on Batman Scooby, is also one of the editors on that special. <clears throat> and Ivan sent me an email saying, um, you know, we're calling this special Twas the Might Before Christmas and we don't have any Batmite stories in it. Do you want to write a Batmite story? Because he knew to go to me if he wanted a Batman story. Um, and so I pitched, I don't know, maybe three or four different ideas, but one of them was this, because I always wanted to do this story. And I realized as funny as it would have been with Jason, it would have been infinitely funnier with Damien. Um, it's sort of, it's sort of what I think of as the dark side Galactus phenomenon, which is you can put dark side or Galactus into any situation and it immediately becomes funny because they're just so inappropriate to any situation that you could stick them into. And so pairing up Damien with Batmite just seemed like a natural. Um, and, you know, I'm actually really happy with the way it came out. And Juan Bobillo, uh, who drew it, uh, I actually had, I had never worked with him before, but I actually had asked for him because I really liked the work he did on Dan Slott's She-Hulk series. And um, and so I knew he could do both straight superhero and humor, 
and knowing that we were going to have Damien and we were also going to have this interdimensional might imp. We needed somebody who was going to be able to draw that and make it look right. And Juan just did a great job on it. Um, apart from DC, you've also done plenty of work for Dynamite over the years. And, and obviously, just in general, you're no stranger to licensed properties. But but how does one get roped into writing Mad Balls versus Garbage Pail Kids? <laughs> oh, well, as I said, I have sort of an eclectic career. <laughs> um, so actually, I'll, I'll, I'll back up for a second and I'll, I'll tell you how I first got involved with Dynamite. Um, because it's kind of a funny story. So Anthony Marcus, uh, mm -hmm. who I first met when he was an assistant editor at DC, working on some of the Superman stuff that I was doing, he had moved over to Dynamite, was an editor at Dynamite. And Matt Idelson, who had been the group editor at, uh, for the Superman books when I first started doing the Superman stuff, had also moved over to Dynamite as, as I don't know, senior editor, group editor, whatever it is. Anthony has sub since then. Anthony has bought the Kubert Schools, which has led me to teaching at the Kubert School and stuff like that. So he's he's been a very good friend to have. Um, Anthony but, and I have gone out drinking. Uh, yeah. He and I I worked at Dewey's Comic City for fifteen years. Oh, okay, great. So, so yeah, so yeah, he's he's a great guy. He's a great mm -hmm. guy, and we're actually in the middle of pitching something with DC right now together. But we'll see if it happens. But anyway, so when Anthony was an editor at Dynamite. I got an email from him one day, <clears throat> or actually, no, I got an email from Matt first, um, although I wound up working with Anthony. An email from Matt saying, would you be interested in pitching stories for something we have coming up? And I thought, wow, you know, Dynamite, Dynamite, they've got the shadow, they've got the spirit, they've got the green hornet, you know, sure, I would love to pitch for something. <clears throat> what is it? And it turned out that what it was, was Boo the World's Cutest Dog, <laughs> which I can't say I got into comics with the, the thought that someday I might get to write Boo the World's Cutest Dog. But, um, but I thought, you know, I haven't worked for Dynamite before. It's a foot in the door. And so I wrote a Boo story. Uh, and I did a story where Boo falls asleep watching a James Bond movie and has a dream that he's a spy. So that I made it a story that I actually wanted to write. And so that led to Anthony asking me to do a Mighty Mouse limited series, um, which was actually, I, you know, it's a shame nobody ever bought it because it was a really good series. It was Mighty Mouse coming to the real world. Um, and Anthony, God knows how he did it, but he managed to get covers by people like Neil Adams and Alex Ross on, on my Mighty Mouse comics, which... I still shake my head over. Um, so, you know, I had sort of this career path at Dynamite, I suppose. And um, and I hadn't done any work for them for a few years because Anthony had gone off to the Kubert School and uh, Matt was doing other stuff over there. And, uh, you know, and so Joe Rybent, who's one of the editors, got in touch with me one day and just said, oh, we're planning this Mad Bulls versus Garbage Pail Kids series. Are you interested? And, you know, and I remembered both of them from the 80s. Um, and I thought, okay, you know, gross out humor is not necessarily my favorite thing, but I said, well, but could we do it, instead of just doing it as a gross out thing, could we do it like creepy Adams Family Munsters kind of thing? And he said, sure. And, and that's, you know, and that is something that I love. Um, I, you know, I have, I have all the Charles Adams books. I have, you know, and all this stuff. And, um, and so that's the way I approached the whole thing. So we did the first series. And once again, you know, I thought, okay, that was fun. You know, it turned out to be a lot of fun. I really enjoyed doing it. And then I got an email from Joe saying, oh, do you want to do another one? And I said, well, what could we possibly do? that we didn't already do. Um, and he said, I don't know, you know, maybe, you know, maybe he send them into the future or something. And so I said, oh, okay, great. This is what we're going to do. We're going to do 
the history of the Mad Bulls Garbage Pail Kids feud from prehistoric times through the Renaissance, through the Old West, through, you know, 50s greaser drag racing all the way up into the future, um, which, you know, gave us much like Batman Scooby, you know, it gave us a whole new bunch of stuff that we could do with the same characters. And once again, made it a lot of fun. So, you know, I, I somehow without trying over the years, because one thing leads to another, I've, I seem to have carved out this little niche for myself that, you know, never really intended to, but of doing, uh, doing all ages really offbeat sort of things that nobody else would really think to do. <laughs> um, but I can't complain because it's a lot of fun. And, you know, and as long as people occasionally let me do other things too, I'm, I'm a happy camper. And and now you've created an alien versus predator for our time. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah. Um, what, what, what would you consider the most out there comic in your bibliography? Uh, and why is the answer Hellraiser masterpieces number four? <laughs> oh, so I did Hellraiser. I mean, I wrote four. No, I wrote five. Four, I don't know. I wrote four or five stories for Hellraiser. I, I see. And this is this is actually how I usually sum up my my career to people. You know, I think I'm the only person who has written both Looney Tunes and Clive Barker's Hellraiser. And, and I the Hellraiser stuff came, you know, I started I started at Marvel many, many, many years ago before most people were born. And um, I started out, I, I actually started out uh, because I had six months off between college and grad school and I needed a job. And so I had gotten a job with this minuscule little publishing company um, that was coming out with its third book at the time. Uh, and I did that for a couple months. And then a friend of mine was graduating. And so he was going to leave his menial file clerk job at Marvel to go get a real job at the Wall Street Journal. And I said, oh, wait, 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 tell them you know somebody. And so I, I worked for a few months doing this menial file clerk job. And uh, through that, wound up uh, meeting a guy named Sandy Hausler, who uh, is still a very close friend of mine. And uh, he at that time was the assistant editor on Marvel Age, the promotional magazine that Marvel did back then. Um, and so he brought me to Jim Salakrip, who was editing Marvel Age, and uh, got him to see that I could put a couple sentences together. And Jim actually is also still a good friend. Um, but I started writing for Marvel Age. And through that, you know, I had to go talk to the editors um, to get information for the articles. And so got to know the editors through that, got to know when people were looking for stories and started writing stories. So uh, Dan Chichester was was the editor on Hellraiser. And um, uh, at least when I started doing Hellraiser, he, he was. And he was kind enough to actually let me do some of this stuff and because one of my story my first story was so unusual because it actually didn't end with people going to hell he put it in the first issue um and uh you know and so i wound up being a lot more prominent than it had any right to be but anyway so that's how i wound up in hellraiser but Let's see, the strangest thing I've ever done. Wow, I've done so many really bizarre things. <laughs> it's really hard to pick one. Um, I mean, I wrote a Ghostbusters novel. I, I oh, you know, oh, okay, I know what it is. There's a light, you know, there's a, a custom publishing division at DC uh, where they do, you know, not the licensed comics that are just the regular DC licensed titles, but comics that go into toys that go into you know i so i've done a couple things for them i wrote comics on the backs of cereal boxes for frankenberry count chocula and blueberry but even more than that i wrote dc hero gag panels that were going to be printed in italy 
on ice cream sandwiches. Not on the wrappers, mind you, but on the ice cream sandwiches. And wow. that's probably the most unusual thing I've done. <laughs> um, and, you know, realizing that I, I could do, had to do gag panels and that I couldn't really use puns because it was going to be an Italian. That was sort of a challenge. <laughs> but, uh, but yeah. And they paid me for it. So, you know, hey. The best part. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> So in, in addition to writing, you know, you're also a developmental psychologist. What yes. is what is one way that you feel like these two aspects of your life inform each other? Oh, okay. So I am a developmental psychologist, but what I really do for a living, well, it's easier to say what I used to do for a living. Um, what I used to do for a living for a bunch of years, uh, I worked at, depending what year it was, what was either called Children's Television Workshop or Sesame Workshop, where they make Sesame Street and stuff like that. Um, and uh, I was kind of in charge of the educational side of things, like working on different TV shows and games and outreach stuff and magazines and the occasional movie and whatever. Um, and basically trying to make sure that it was going to be stuff the kids were going to like and they were going to get something out of um and testing stuff out with kids to make sure that that was the case and so on and so forth um so i still do that kind of stuff now um except that now i do it as a consultant to a lot of different places and different countries around the world and and, and i still do stuff for sesame too you know all of it really kind of comes down to the same stuff which is storytelling you know and and how do you how do you tell stories that are going to engage an audience, whether it's kids or whether it's grownups or whatever? And, you know, and sometimes it's a, it's a closer tie than others. So, you know, when, when I was writing super friends for DC, which was basically the, the concept was, you know, my first superheroes, basically it was, it was the justice league for really young kids, like five, six years old. Um, and each story was supposed to have a pro-social message to it and so on and so forth and that's you know that's what i do for the living in my day job it's just that now i was carrying it over to my late at night job too um so sometimes it really matches up or you know or the the batman's mystery casebook graphic novel you know i you know i put in all these mysteries that are you know they're designed to get kids thinking and to get and it's really all problem solving and deductive reasoning and stuff like that and in between the mysteries put in these little two three page features about different kinds of forensics um you know fingerprints and dna and stuff like that um in a way that works for kids you know and and that actually was inspired by what is probably still my favorite Hardy Boys book, um, which was the only one that wasn't a novel. It was the Hardy Boys Detective Handbook, uh, which I devoured as a kid and read over and over. I still have a copy upstairs, but, um, you know, and I, I, you know, just to find out, oh, this is how you take fingerprints. And so I was going around with powder and scotch tape and doing all this stuff. And, you know, and I wanted to get kids nowadays doing that. Um, so, you know, so sometimes it really overlaps a lot. Sometimes, you know, I'm just going to do a Looney Tunes story and blow things up without any, you know, concern whatsoever for what impact it might have on a young child, um, because it's just fine. <laughs> um, so, you know, sometimes, sometimes it helps a lot. Sometimes it's, you know, just in the background a little bit, but um once again, you know, I'm really happy that I've been able to have the career that I've had because basically what I do is whatever looks like fun that people will pay me money for. And, you know, that beats coal mining. So <laughs> sure does. Um, yeah. Has the, the TV side of things for you, how has that changed, I guess, like in the in the age of streaming? It's changed, but it also hasn't to a certain degree. I mean, the big difference now from 30 years ago is that children today have no concept of 
a show not being on. Um, you know, because everything's available all the time. Um, and by the same token, there's also exponentially more competition uh, than there ever was. And because of YouTube and things like that, things have gotten shorter and shorter. Um, so in that respect, things are different. But in terms of what works for kids, in terms of, you know, I mean, kids still like the same stuff. They like humor. They like characters, they like mystery, they like adventure, they, you know, all of that stuff, you know, and, you know, and how to get stuff across in a way that a kid's going to understand. I mean, you know, kids are still kids, no matter what year it is, no matter where they live, whatever. So there's a lot more that's really stays the same than the changes um but you know you respond to what changes and you you build on the stuff that you know works in uh, in you know prepping for this episode uh, i saw one of your earliest jobs was working on the uh, math tv show square one and that just oh, yeah. that unlocked like core memories for me because i i think for a while i forgot that show existed <laughs> You know, I you know, people don't talk yeah. about it in the same sort of breath as like Sesame Street, Mr. Rogers, you know, Carmen San Diego, whatever, whatever. But like that was definitely a show I remember watching after right. school. So Mathnet. Yeah, uh, Mathnet. Yeah, math. yeah. So I loved Square One. I mean, we actually last year, last January, like 2022. We actually had a Zoom reunion for a whole bunch of the cast and crew. Unfortunately, a lot of people are not around anymore. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but there, there was a whole bunch of us who were. And, and we actually had a Zoom reunion for the first time in many, many years, which was wonderful. Um, but here, all right. I'll tell you about my first day with Square One. You know, I was in grad school at the time. And I was halfway through grad school. And... Um, I walked into Barnes and Noble one day when it was still a store and not a website. And um, I came across this book, a uh, book by Jerry Lesser called Children Television Lessons from Sesame Street, which was a book about the creation of Sesame Street. And it was a paperback book. It wasn't very expensive. It looked kind of interesting. So I said, all right, fine, I'll pick it up on a whim. And, uh, and I discovered for the first time that people actually did research with kids and all this stuff to create these shows. Uh, which I had never suspected. Um, and it was the same kind of stuff that I was doing in grad school. And so I didn't have any plans for the summer. And uh, so on a whim, I called up Children's Television Workshop and I said, do you have internships? So I got turned down for an internship with Sesame Street and I got turned down for an internship with 3 on Contact. And I never let the research directors forget that in later years when they had to pay me. Um, but... Um, but then I got referred over to this new show that was just in production, hadn't been on the air yet. Square One TV was going to be this math show. So I went in to interview with the, the woman who was the research director at that time. And I walked in and she said, oh, great, you're here early. You're, you know, you're here a few minutes early. We just got some footage in from the West Coast. Why don't you come? You know, we're all watching it now. Why don't you come watch it with us? And so my first experience with Square One was a couple dozen people crammed into an office that was way too small, sitting on the floor watching MathNet, which, you know, you know what MathNet is for the sake of anybody who doesn't know. MathNet was basically Dragnet with mathematicians. And it was brilliant. It was absolutely brilliant. It was the creation of the the executive producer, Dave Connell, who had been the exec the first executive producer for Sesame, and the head writer, Jim Thurman, who had been the head writer on Electric Company. You know, I was bowled over by this thing. And then she said, okay, so why don't we go to my office and we'll go talk? And we did. And we walked into her office and there was a live studio feed um, on a monitor in her office where they were taping a segment with uh, with magic tricks with Blackstone the Magician. And I was a huge magic kid when I was a teenager. So this was, oh, wow. So, you know, we've gone from MathNet to Blackstone. And by the end of the interview, I had, you know, I had the internship. And my desk 
was in the hallway under a giant sign for Bozo's Clown School. Uh, Bozo being another childhood hero of mine. And I I just knew I was home. Um, and, you know, and I, so I did the internship that summer, finished the summer, said, well, you know, that was all really cool and, and fun. Time to go back to work and, you know, and then I got a call from uh, from the research director asking if I want to just do some freelance work for them uh, while I was in grad school. And so I did that for the next few years um, and wound up working on all of the seasons of Square One uh, by the by the fourth and fifth. I was I was the research director because people kept leaving to take other jobs and giving they'd given me their work. But. Yeah, it was the first TV show I ever worked on, and it it was just a wonderful experience because it was such a great show and such a great group of people. And uh, Matt, did you know that one of the actors from Square One, Larry Cedar, played Cornelius Hawthorne, Pierce's dad, on Community in season three? <laughs> now I know. Larry, Larry has turned up in the weirdest places. Larry, in the Twilight Zone movie... When they they did the remake of the William Shatner creature on the wing, Larry was the creature on the wing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, <laughs> he yeah he he just he pops up in in the weirdest places. Um, but yeah, so as do some of the other cast members. Some of them have moved on to producing and other things, but uh, but some of them still pop up now and then. Cynthia Darlow turned up on the the marvelous mrs mazel as uh, she was what's his name joel mazel's secretary mrs something or other i can't remember um and, and when we had our reunion last year um she told us that uh when the the executive from amazon prime came to the set one day he was most excited to meet her because he had been a square one fan when he was a kid. <laughs> so, yeah. It's amazing. The legacy lives on. <laughs> so you've got a bunch of what I believe to be gorgeous looking original art behind you on that wall there. Uh, can you tell us what some of that is? Sure. So that particular wall is all pages from stories I wrote. Um, as opposed to the wall behind my computer, which is the wall of Batman. That the wall behind the computer has just about all of my favorite versions. There's, well, there's an ostensible Bob Kane drawing. It's the only one on the wall that I'm not 100% sure is authentic. <laughs> um, but there's a Jerry Robinson Joker, there's a Marshall Rogers Batman, there's a Neil Adams Batman, there's a Jim Mooney Batman, there's a, a cell from the animated series, whatever, all, all sorts of stuff. Oh, and of course, there's a, a Shelley Moldoff drawing of Batmite and Ace the Batman. The wall behind me, so like I say, this is, you know, it's all stuff that I wrote. And once again, it's that eclectic combination. So we've got Bugs Bunny and Looney Tunes. We've got Spider-Man and the Thing from Marvel Tales. We've got Clive Barker's Hellraiser, Super Friends, Iron Man. We've got Scooby-Doo. We've got Action Comics, you know, Teen Titans Go, a page from Batman's Mystery Case, but, you know, all kinds of junk. As we're winding down, what are you reading right now? What am I reading right now? I, I'm assuming you're talking about comics. Um, comics, prose, whatever anything. you want to talk about. Oh, I read all kinds of junk, but um, in terms of comics, let's see. Um, I'm waiting because my comic shop is a little behind getting me the last issue of Terry Moore's Parker Girls, the spinoff from Strangers of Paradise. I, I mean, I always read Batman and Justice League and Spider-Man and Captain America, um, X-Men, uh, but uh I've been really enjoying the Mark Wade World's Finest Teen Titans. You know, it, it's one of those series that I wish I had written. Um, you know, uh, all sorts of stuff. I mean, book-wise, so, you know, like I said, I just finished up a mystery today. Um, read a book recently about um, the impact of the Beatles and James Bond on uh, British society uh 
reading. Oh, more heavy duty thing. I'm reading a eight a nineteenth century commentary on part of the Bible. I'm reading. I mean, it I, it's a once again a bizarre and eclectic range of stuff. It's it's whatever looks interesting, basically. Um, and you know, and it's all helpful because you know it all becomes kind of grist for the mill in in trying to come up with ideas for the stuff I'm doing. Um, and you know, winds up being useful in the strangest ways at the strangest times. So, well, Charlie, this has been a fantastic time. Final question: As we release you back into the world, uh, how can people? How what is the best way that people can keep up with everything that you have going on? Oh well, that's up to them because I don't I I don't do any social media, <laughs> so um, because very healthy of you. <laughs> well. It's partly because, you know, it's just such a time sucker and partly because nobody would really care what I had for breakfast. Um, but, uh, you know, so the best way to keep up with it is really just the same way you keep up with all this stuff. With You know, everybody, there, there are infinite numbers of news services out there now and infinite numbers of previews. So, you know, I mean, I can tell you at the moment, What's coming up? So there's the holiday special that's out now. There's the new Batman Scooby series that's starting up. I just finished writing a, a middle school graphic novel that's a Wonder Woman spinoff that, uh, because these things have a really long lead time, probably, I don't know, late next year, maybe it'll come out, something like that. And there's this pitch that uh, that just went in today that... Uh, I won't talk about because God knows if it'll happen, but mm. uh, we'll just build that little bit of suspense, shall we? Um, so, you know, there's always something going on. That's great. Well, Charlie, thank you so much for coming on the show. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you for asking. That's it for this week's show. As a reminder, WMQ&A is part of Comics XF, where you can find this podcast along with our sister podcasts, Battle of the Atom and Bat Chat with Matt and Will, a Batman ranking podcast co-hosted by Matt Lazowitz and Will Nevin. You can listen to WMQ&A on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Amazon Music, Audible, and at ComicsXF.com, where new episodes move Tuesday mornings. You can support WMQ&A at Patreon.com slash ComicsXF, where a dollar donation gets you a shout-out at the end of every episode. A $2 donation gets you early access to WMQ&A and a shout-out at the end of every episode. A $3 donation gets you a sticker, early access, and a shout-out. A $5 donation gets you access to our monthly bonus podcast, Our Son Pete, a deep dive into the comic appearances of British mutant super spy Pete Wisdom. A $25 donation lets you request a primer, one of our custom reading guides for a series, character, or creator at ComicsXF, and a $50 donation lets you advertise on the show. Big thanks to our patrons, Lisa Slack, Will Redman, Tobias Carroll, Natalie Jordan, Mike Sagawa, Will Nevin, Liz Large, Asimov Fangirl, Carla Pacheco, and Robert Secundus. You're all special, and we love you. You can follow the podcast on Twitter at WMQ Comics, me at Daniel P. Grote, Matt Lazowitz at MattLaz1013, and ComicsXF at ComicsXF. You can also follow ComicsXF on Facebook, Instagram, and Blue Sky. And until next week, remember, Rob Liefeld's greatest contribution to comics isn't Deadpool or Youngblood or even Major X. It's his impression of Todd McFarlane. W-N-Q-A.